Today's far-right Republicans insist that our kids just be taught myth. Now comes Liberty is Sweet, the hidden history of the American Revolution. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. To solidify their hold on power, authoritarians depend on the majority of the people accepting the truth of myths. The control of history is an essential element of illegitimate power. Even a casual observer can see that certain favored stories in history are emphasized and promoted and frankly drummed into school children for the purpose of legitimizing power and many other inconvenient stories are uh, either twisted into acceptable shape or erased altogether. In fact, as historians know all too well, many of the most meaningful, most significant lessons of history are routinely suppressed and made to disappear. This reality is playing itself out heavily in the politics of 2022 and 2024. It's the culture war. Never mind that none of the culture war issues can be decided at the voting booth. The, this passion for myths against truth is what drives the highly energized Trumpist right. And it works. Consider, who we are today politically and culturally has everything to do with what we are taught in elementary school about America. For example, I was taught that America is the beacon of hope to oppressed people everywhere and that we could be depended on to fight for the freedom of people under the yoke of colonialism. After all, we did that. Help them determine their own future. Then came Vietnam. Here was a people basically owned by colonial France. They wanted our help, yet the myth I was taught proved to be false. We fought against their independence. How could that be, since our own identity was a proud one? The underdog overthrew the plutocratic occupiers, the British in the War of Independence. But what if it wasn't so neat, so cut and dried? I'm reminded, as I so often am, of the words of H.L. Mencken, for every complex problem, there's a simple solution, and it's wrong. Could it be that the heroic, righteous freedom and equality-loving colonialists had other not-so-idealistic motivations for that war? Well, at least some of them. Today, after a few years, we welcome back historian Woody Holton, whose new book is Liberty is Sweet, The Hidden History of the American Revolution. Woody, thanks so much for being back with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. I'm glad to be back. Thank you for the invitation. When last on, he, we discussed his book, Unruly Americans, which I rather enjoyed, a history of the Amer average working-class Americans who challenged the framers of the Constitution and with rebellions like Shays and Whiskey forced the upper-class framers uh, the revisions that produced the document we now venerate. The rich white male framers who gathered in Philadelphia in 1787 were determined to reverse America's post-revolutionary war slide into democracy. Yes, they were not for it. But the farmers and yeomen made sure we had some democracy, that the government would not just serve the rich and powerful. 
Woody Holton is the Bonnie and Peter McCausland Professor of History at the University of South Carolina. He's the author of the new book, Liberty is Sweet, The Hidden History of the American Revolution, published by Simon & Schuster. His 2009 book, Abigail Adams, which he wrote on a Guggenheim Fellowship, won the Bancroft Prize. He's the author of Unruly Americans and the Origins of the Constitution. His first book, Forced Founders, Indians, Debtors, Slaves, and the Making of the American Revolution in Virginia. His books are required reading on more than 200 college campuses, and his work has been widely anthologized and also translated into German and Arabic. Now, pretty much everybody in 2022 was aware of the ruckus made by the right over critical race theory. Of course, the actual topic has nothing to do with the real motivation of those who say they are against it. It's really about owning and controlling the history curriculum in schools. Those insisting glorious myth overpower actual history demand that future generations believe slavery and racism were just ugly aberrations. But the more one dares to look at actual American history, the more one sees how perhaps surprisingly slavery and racism is and always has been at the base of our economic and cultural history. They're built into our foundation. After the ruckus began over the New York Times 1619 project, Woody Holton, you launched yourself into the fray. Instead of letting it die down in your new book, The Hidden History of the American Revolution, you lend support to the author of uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones. Many are the, motiv- are the motivations among the people who are now seen as patriots fighting the British. How did defense of slavery help spark the American Revolution. This is something that's not particularly known. Well, it was not particularly controversial among those of us who knew it all these years. I wish I could say that I discovered this or, in, or that the 1619 Project discovered this, but um, it's, it's absolutely clear in the record from the time, and historians have been talking about it at least for decades, and that is this, that the British, and by the way, they did make one mistake in the original version of the 1619 Project. They had the British as anti-slavery, and that's just not true. What they did do, though, while continuing to hold their own slaves, in desperation, the governor of Virginia, the largest British colony, the governor of Virginia in 1775 was desperate for fighters. He had very few uh, British troops, there were hardly any people, white people in Virginia who were loyal to the crown by November 1775. So in that month, he made a real throw of the dice and said, okay, I'm going to issue an emancipation proclamation saying if you are enslaved by one of the rebels like Washington or Jefferson, uh-huh. and the bigger if, if you can get to me, then I will free you in return for your service for your king. And uh, hundreds of people joined him in that first year, thousands uh, over the course of the war, something like 9,000. And what that did in the South, didn't have a huge impact in the North, but in the South, it infuriated white people because the governor's number one job was supposed to be to protect them from their slaves, as well as Native Americans and and foreign uh, overseas threats. Uh, so here's the guy who's supposed to be keeping your slave from killing you, basically asking your slave to kill you. And they <laughs> were furious. Um, and and so um, now there are lots of other things that led to the Declaration of Independence. When Jefferson drew up his list 
of grievances, there were 27 items on it. But one of those items, and in fact, in Jefferson's original rough draft of the Declaration, it was by far the longest. It was the only one where he fell back on that thing that the amateur writer does, all caps. Uh, it, it's the only one where he accused the king of being a bad Christian, which, you know, them was fighting words in those days as it is for many today. The only one that met all those qualifications. Oh, and also they saved the best for last. So it was the longest. It was all these things was the one where he first condemned the king for forcing white Americans to have slaves, uh, which we could talk about. There's actually a tiny grain of truth in that, but mostly not. Of course, no one was forced to have slaves. He first condemns the American, the king for forcing America, white Americans to have slaves. And then the capstone is, and now he stirred those same people up against us. So the Continental Congress cut out the part denouncing slavery did seem kind of hypocritical for a guy who owned 600 people over the course of his lifetime to be coming out against slavery. So they, and, and also both Georgia and South Carolina slaveholders wanted to keep buying people and Rhode Islanders wanted to keep selling those people to them. So they cut it, cut all that anti-slavery rhetoric out, but left in this phrase in the Declaration of Independence, he has excited domestic insurrection amongst us. The he being the king as represented by his governor, has stirred up our slaves against us. The one thing I would say qualifying that was it wasn't really the British who stirred up the slaves. If you follow the chronology, it was the slaves who stirred up the British. That is, they kept appealing to the British saying, hey, we want to be free and we know you need our help. Let us help you. And the British would threaten that and talk about it and, you know, do what politicians do. Think about it and do, let's study it some more. And the slaves kept coming and kept coming. And eventually the British did welcome them. And there it is right there in the Declaration of Independence. Not the only charge by any means that the Americans levied against the British, but the capstone grievance was how dare you form an alliance against us with our slaves. Oh, there's so much unknown and hypocrisy. Oh my goodness, I'm so shocked that there's hypocrisy in uh, in our history. <laughs> and and following up on that, you you write that African Americans as well as indigenous people of the founding era had the power to influence everyone's fate, but their own. What do you mean yeah, by that? Yeah. Well, that that may be a somewhat um, broad brush statement because they could sometimes obviously affect their own fate. Uh, as well. Um, but um, but it is true that Native Americans, which I, I'll tell you about how in a second, um, and African Americans, as I've just told you, they both helped bring on the American Revolution. And most Native Americans and a sizable portion of African Americans became the worst victims of the American Revolution. Native Americans, because their land was taken, not immediately after the revolution, but it got the British out of the way. The British had been holding the colonists back for their own reasons. And once, once the British are out of the picture, um, it only took a few decades for uh, the new United States to drive the Indians from their land. So they are the worst victims of mm. this revolution that they'd inadvertently helped cause. Mm. And African-Americans are among the worst victims in that about a million of them were taken from Maryland and Virginia um, and sent south um, to to much even worse conditions. And also, when you're sent south, then you're most likely separated 
from your wife right. and your kids right. uh, and your brother and sister forever. And, you know, we everyone did, rightly denounces the African slave trade that brought a half million people to what's now North America. But that's only half as big as the internal slave trade that drove a million people from the upper South to the lower South. So African-Americans, I mean, I like your, your making quote about the complexity of things because um, African-Americans, I would say, were both the biggest gainers and the worst sufferers as a result of the American Revolution. The worst sufferers, I mentioned, but the best gainer, the biggest gainers in that, you know, hooray for George Washington. Uh, I don't mean to be sarcastic, but at least he doesn't he doesn't have to pay taxes to a, a legislative body in which he's not represented taxation without representation. That was a big achievement uh, for him. I'm not I'm, I, don't, I really don't want to belittle that. I don't want, you know, the. The, the 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 French Parliament to uh, tax you and me right now either. So that's a big issue, but it's nothing compared to what many of the people who Washington had held uh, in slavery got, and that is freedom. Uh, in fact, one of the many people who escaped from Washington was a guy named uh, Harry, Harry, who later took on the last name Washington, uh, and he ended up settling in a new British colony of Sierra Leone on the African coast. Uh-huh. And one of the things he did a few, a couple decades after after moving there was uh, Harry Washington, like George Washington, led a tax revolt. Yeah, people people want to keep their money. That's for sure. And uh, as as you were describing the difficulties uh, and and how so many people were victimized by this. The title of your book, Liberty is Sweet, The Hidden History of the American Revolution. How did you come up with that, Liberty is Sweet? I, I didn't. I plagiarized it from <laughs> Lund Washington, who was, I should have put in quotes, I guess, but uh, 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 Lund Washington was George Washington's cousin, but more importantly, he ran Mount Vernon, Washington's home, eight miles from the modern city of Washington. Lund was running that while George Washington was off running the Continental Army, and uh, when Lund Washington heard about Dunmore's proclamation, um, he wrote his cousin George saying, you know, some of your slaves are probably going to run away. I'm already hearing motions that way. And can you re-? basically he said, can you really blame them? And then the quote was, can you blame them? Liberty is sweet. Uh, and so I, my, I use that title, Bert, as kind of a trick sure. that people would think that it's a quote from Patrick Henry. It sounds like something he would say. Right. Um, but it's actually a quote from um, a quote referring uh, to enslaved people. Yeah, and, and uh, hopefully that uh, brings in people. And who is your target audience for this book? Is it uh, academics or who is it? And why now? Well, yeah, you, why did you, why did you perhaps put it out now? Um, well, uh, first on the audience, you mentioned that my book is required uh, at a couple hundred. Various books of mine are very required at a bunch of campuses, and I'm. Glad about that, both uh, in terms of getting the word out and making a little money. Yeah. But I really wanted finally to reach people who are not being required to read the book, but people who actually uh, read history because they love it. Uh-huh. Um, and that's a different kind of history. Uh, you're in that small few, the few, the proud who've read Unruly Americans, my <laughs> book about the financial origins of the Constitution. Pretty, pretty dry stuff. Even I admit it. And if I'm admitting it, just think. Um, but uh, but I wanted to write a book that ordinary people would read. So this is um, only my second book that's chronological. I, I did a biography uh, of Abigail Adams, um, which was great fun. But this was an effort to cover the entire revolutionary era chronologically. And then why now? Uh, because 
well, first I should say there's a bunch of good books on that cover the entire American Revolution. Alan Taylor, a double Pulitzer winner, he wrote one called American Revolutions with an S at the end. Gary Nash, my friend Ray Raphael. There's good books, but the one thing that nobody had done was put everybody into the same narrative. That is Alan's uh, book, which I think is fantastic. There's he'll he'll write about Native Americans for a while, and then he'll go write about whites for a while, and the women, and so forth. And it's a wonderful book. And frankly, between you and me and whoever's listening, if I had to assign one book, I'd assign him his over mine because he's got so many so many people, especially the, the west of the Mississippi. Uh, it's a really full book. But as Alan would also tell you, it's it's not a strict chronology, and and. You lose two things when you don't go chronological. One yeah. is you lose a lot of readers because people people want it to read like a novel, you know, sequentially. And more importantly, what you lose if you don't write a chronology, what you get by writing a chronology, is that's how it happened. That is, it's not like Native Americans were active between 1760 and 1763 and then right. they shut up and right. and women started becoming really active between 64 and 67. They're, they, all these things happened together and influence each other and you really can only show that if you go chronologically uh -huh. well you didn't uh, we've generally done things chronologically and it's easier to go by the numbers and by the way i very much enjoyed unruly americans and i think it's important to understand what i consider to be some of the roots of populism these days you know the the, the rich and powerful versus everybody else who's not rich and powerful and who does the government work for and who do our taxes support anyway uh, when I grew up in the 1950s, it was the great men perspective. They were the makers of history, not your average person. And as you said, you don't devote one chapter to indigenous and another to women and another to enslaved, another to the military. You say you try to use events like the boughs of a Christmas tree. How so? Oh, I appreciate you mentioning that because when I was saying just now that I've written this chronological book, I think a lot of people might have heard Oh, so it's just a straight narrative that doesn't make any arguments. Um, and I, it's not that, or, or at least it's not trying to be that. Um, like I compared to my very first book, which came out in 1999, it was divided by chapter because I really wanted to emphasize my arguments. You know, it was my first time out there and it was my dissertation. And I wanted people to see, oh, yeah, Holton has some, some arguments to make here. And I thought the only way to make arguments was to organize it topically like that. But I've since become convinced that you can do a chronology uh, so long as you pause every now and then to say, uh, OK, remember that point I made about Washington being a terrible general at first? This is further proof of that. That is, it's trusting the reader. You know, you, you, you have to remind them, but you're not the reader to be able to handle arguments that are spread off, spread out across many pages rather than uh, having a sort of a subchapter dedicated to them does that make sense i think so and you know people it, it there's it's a tough time for for uh authors these days that's for sure the uh, publishers are really holding back but you need to grab the attention and hold it throughout uh the the book i like to think we do that on the radio broadcast as well i keep trying and for those who may have just tuned in bert cohen here the show is keeping democracy live we're talking about some of the roots of america our guest today is woody holton uh professor of history and author of the new book liberty is sweet the hidden history of the american revolution and you, some who read history focus on the battles, the military history, 
They relish reading about the intricacies of battle. I suppose it's like sports in many ways. I <laughs> military, military. politics, right? Oh, so you yeah. can call the game. Oh my goodness. I don't do it that way personally, but that's just one way to right. do it. Military strategies right. are of course crucial in determining political outcome, that which I think really matters. Uh, an old professor of mine defined politics as the economy of violence. In, in that light, the military uprisings, the riots, the wars, they're part of it. They're part of politics, for sure. And you write that you, quote, overcame the conventional academic prejudice that military history is mere storytelling. Winning control of the hills is a military goal in virtually every war. What is revealed at Boston's uh, Battle Breeds Hill, Bunker Hill, same thing, that made a win uh, not a win? Oh, well, the classic, and people use this analogy right after the battle itself, uh, is you know the famous story about Pyrrhus. He, he's won the battle and lost the war. Um, and the hero of your what you're properly calling Breed's Hill, uh, uh, um, the, that we call Bunker, most people call Bunker Hill, but yeah. it really was uh, Breed's Hill. And that matters, actually, because the the... The troops who went out there to secure that hill for the American side, it's a hill north, just north of Boston on Peninsula, just north of Boston. Yes. The people, the guys sent out there were sent to Bunker Hill, um, which would have been an inoffensive place to to uh, to fortify because it was out of cannon range from Boston. But they said, hey, you know what? Let's go closer. And they therefore basically started the Revolutionary War. Lexington and Concord had already happened, but this is going to be the first major battle of the Revolution because by just going a, a mile closer to Boston, they got in cannon range. The British felt like they had, they couldn't leave them there. And so the British famously on June 17th, 1775, uh, sent troops to recapture Breed's Hill. And you can see now why they call it Bunker's Hill because that's that's what the papers say, you know, go, go, go secure Bunker Hill. Anyway, the, the, the hero of that battle was William Howe, who was not yet the British commander-in-chief, but he commanded those troops and took him three tries, but he captured the hill. And as you said, that's sort of how they've defined victory uh, throughout time. And it's sort of still part of, part of how, how the war in Ukraine is being defined, you know, who, who claims the territory. But my point about General Howe is, yes, he won that battle, but about five days later, he sat down and sent a letter home saying, we're going to lose this war Yeah. because he said, the Americans are on the hill. I drove the Americans off. And where did they grow, go when I drove them off the hill to the next hill, to, to Winter Hill and Prospect Hill uh, in Cambridge? And guess what? This is a land of hills. It's amazing, actually, to see because I've been to Britain. You know, they have the, the Lake District, which is a hilly area and. Mountains and there's even a mountain in Wales that Hugh Grant climbed up one time. There, there's hills right, over there, but right. these guys, these British generals, they were used to fighting in what they still call the low countries um, like the Netherlands. Uh, and they just were not used to fighting on hills. Um, and 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 so and also the bigger thing to say about the Brits in America is that they're on offense. And so they have to take and hold land. And they just couldn't do it because, yes, they'd take a hill and the Americans would – but they'd take that hill, like Bunker Hill, literally the British casualties were 50 percent. And then the Americans dropped back to the next hill and sort of – you know how you could, with your figure like uh, 
I'm, uh, I'm thinking of the uh, sword fighter who sort of gestures with his little finger or uh, the one next to the thumb, whatever the index finger, you know, come and get it, buddy. The Americans wanted them to attack. That's why the Americans later secured Dorchester Heights south of Boston. Oh, yeah. They didn't they didn't secure that hill because they wanted to bombard Boston. They secured that hill because they knew it would force the British to come out of Boston and come up the hill uh, and and attack Dorchester Heights. Now, that, in that case, that was the following year, 1776. The British uh, were smart enough to just leave. Um, but 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 how understood after Bunker Hill, the first conventional battle of the Revolutionary War, that he was going to lose. Um, and 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 the only person who hadn't gotten the memo was George Washington, because he was not at Bunker Hill. He got his commission that day, ironically, down in Philadelphia, and he shows up on July 2nd, takes over on the 3rd, and he says, okay, we got to attack Boston. So to paint the picture a little better, the British controlled Boston, which was basically an island at the time, Yes. and the Americans were everywhere else in this crescent uh, around uh, Boston, and, um, and the Americans were trying to get the British to come attack them so they'd lose more people like they did at Bunker Hill, but Washington says, no, 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 we got to go on the offense. And so, you know, start building boats because we're going to do an amphibious assault uh, on Boston. And, you know, D-Day hadn't happened yet, but that basically he was imagining himself as General Eisenhower hitting the beaches. But uh, I spent a lot of time around there. It's really muddy shores. Hey, hey it's, a, it's a, the, the Charles River was a lot wider yes. uh, then. So you've got a lot of territory to cover. And meanwhile, the British, who, uh, who are massively outgun you, specifically in Cannon, are firing something called grape shot at you. It's yeah. like a giant oh, yeah. um, shotgun, you know, but not everybody does. It's 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 a horrible thing to have to go into. And so they'd be rolling across the river into that. And then once they got across the river, they've got that famous New England mud yes. uh, to climb through and get shot down. And I'm constantly seeing pictures of people being rescued down on the Cape or whatever because of uh, gotten they've gotten stuck out in that mud. Uh, and then and then. As as Washington discovered once uh, the Americans, once the British voluntarily left Boston, they had every avenue fortified. Um, if you remember uh, Les Mis, uh, where they've got the barricades in the streets. The British have basically had it set up for house-to-house fighting, and they just would have destroyed the Americans. But Washington w- didn't know how well it was fortified, uh, uh, and he was determined to go forward, go forward and attack and and you really have to get a lot of credit to his council of war that is his subordinate generals in holding him back um first uh-huh. they said it's crazy to go across the water and so then the water froze as it sometimes did it doesn't much anymore uh but yeah. did in in january february of 76 so he said oh well we'll skate across uh and and uh, attack boston that way and they talked him out of that um and then finally, they did this whole Dorchester Heights thing that leaves forces the British to leave, and that's when Boston, that's when Washington went into the abandoned city of Boston and saw just how heavily the British had fortified it. The phrase he used was almost impregnable, and he realized what a disaster it would have been if he had not listened to his generals but come ahead and attacked. And after that, he became this is a complex point, but he became more complex in action, if not in word. That is, he kept coming up with these grand assaults after the British captured New York City in 1776. Mm. He spent the rest of the war. He came up with 12 different plans to do a 
a D-Day type invasion of New York City, which, of course, as you know, is literally an island, uh, one little bridge at the time up to uh, up to what's now the Bronx. Um, and he was determined, determined to attack New York. He sometimes had the men in the boats. At one point, they got in the boats. They went across the Hudson River and they get ready to land and they called it off. Um, and so to me, that was Washington's greatest contribution to the American victory was restraining himself. Mm-hmm. So interesting. Historians now, go ahead. It's sort of like talking about masculinity. Yeah. Um, and, you know, how what masculinity forces men to do because they're feeling like they're holding up to the masculine idea. And I think part of his thing about going on offense was, was that British, you know, he, he was a loyal British subject until right before the war and, and he'd been schooled in that. Uh, hey, I own all these enslaved people. I got all these women under my control. Um, I, I, it's my job to be out there on the offense. And you really have to credit his officers for restraining him. And then later, you credit him for restraining himself. That's what I think more than anything won the war. Interesting. I've long said that uh, you know masculinity, this this hyper masculinity that uh, the Republicans are now latched onto. It has nothing to do with politics, really, but everything to do with the culture war. Uh, is that uh, it's not true that Macho usually gets you into trouble. What is true is that Macho always gets you into trouble. Always, always. Yes, yes, you're giving me an op-ed idea, man. We could do it together, which is uh, if, if toxic masculinity almost lost us the Revolutionary War. Ah, interesting. Wow. Although and- I will say something in Washington's defense. The, uh, the, 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 the big moment, uh, which I like to refer to as Washington's surrender, is Yorktown at the end of the war. Uh-huh. Um, and yes, I said Washington's surrender because... There's a real sense in which he surrendered. He was up at New York, and he want, he still was bent on attacking New York. Uh, but his French friends, Rochambeau, the uh, commander-in-chief of the British Army here, and de Grasse, who was bringing a fleet of, I think it was 28 uh, ships of the line, big battleships, um, they said, no, 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 monsieur, we should go attack the British in your home state of Virginia at this place called Yorktown. That'll be much easier. They've got a smaller army there and it's not an island. Uh, and so we can just uh, trap them against the York River and that'll be the easier thing. And But Washington was still, on the one hand, bent on attacking New York. On the other hand, he had a very good reason for not wanting to go to Virginia. And it's one of the things that I've spent a lot of time on in the book and that people don't know that much about. And that is these northern soldiers fear of southern disease um which caused mutiny numerous times in both armies it it caused tensions on the british side as well um there you know it's one reason uh not the only one racism was a bigger one but one reason that they recurred to africans to do this incredibly uh ugly work in the rice swamps and the sugarcane fields was that they believed africans Uh. were more able to handle tropical disease. And there's actually some possible basis for that because of the sickle cell trait that gets you sickle cell anemia also makes you slightly less likely to die of malaria or yellow fever. Anyway, they knew that. They knew they they they, they knew they didn't know where yellow they didn't know that those things came from bugs, but they knew that yellow fever and uh, malaria came from uh, hot, swampy weather and those northern soldiers did not want to come south. So so part, part of the reason that Washington did not want to head south uh, uh, and attack Cornwallis at Yorktown 
was that he wanted to stay in New York so that his soldiers wouldn't mutiny. Uh-huh. Um, but but the French insisted and uh, basically presented him with a fait accompli, and that's why I call it Washington Surrender, because he surrendered to his French uh, colleagues' determination to go after the British in Virginia rather than in New York, and that's how we got Yorktown. If Washington had had his way, there would have been no surrender at Yorktown. Oh, my goodness. There's so much more to history, and it's nice to talk to somebody who has rather obvious enthusiasm for his or her subject, (laughs) as you do. Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is uh, that laid-back, reserved... uh, (laughs) (laughs) Slow-talking Southerner, yeah. (laughs) Woody Holton, who's got a new book out called Liberty is Sweet, The Hidden History of the American Revolution. And so much we've covered here, and, and there's so much that's not known. You know, it's it's not so simple. War is generally considered a man's business, but revolution, well, it's something else. And I, I think in history of the spontaneous uprising by the starving women in St. Petersburg in 1905, they were literally starving. They could not feed their children. They were angry. Kurdish women took the lead in the fight against ISIS, as we may recall. In America's War of Independence from the British and the war against Southern independence nearly 100 years later, my impression, the impression that women were in the background, helping supply the men doing the fighting. A previous book you wrote is a biography of Abigail Adams. You say her declaration of independence was indeed economic, and that research, as you say, researching Liberty is Sweet, I saw the war transform other women as well. Please give us some examples. Uh, let me respond to your global context, too, which I appreciate first. But notice how most of those cases you've mentioned were uh, not the side where women played such a big role were not necessarily revolutionary in the sense of supporting women's rights. No. That is what it was a matter of desperation. And I think about this. I spent much of my childhood in, and adulthood in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, and you know about the Richmond, that may have been what you're referring to about the Southern War of Southern Independence, the Richmond bread riots, that was women um, uh, also also um, uh, rioting in, uh, to get bread. Um, these were Southern Confederate white women. And, you know, the whole point of that war, at least as they described it, was we're going to keep our slaves so our wives can be on, uh, you know, genteel and pale and indoors and never outside working, all that, all that Southern mythology. And yet here were these women kicking ass because they needed to feed their kids. And I would say that was true of the Revolutionary War as well. That is, it was more significant for women as a war than as a revolution. Um, And if we just look at the law, the laws did not change at all in favor of women. Uh, Many states made divorce slightly easier, but only uh, slightly. And it tended to favor the men who wanted to dump their first wife. As much as it defo- as much as it helped women who were being beaten by their husbands, uh, it was still very hard for them to get a divorce. So the you know women still couldn't own property once they were married uh, and things like that. But it did have an impact, um, and that was big, in the same way that Governor Dunmore, as we talked about at the start of this conversation, he was desperate for labor, and, and therefore recruited uh, black people as soldiers. Um, the there was a massive shortage of labor in the American Revolution as well, and that led to opportunities uh, for women. And, you know, there's the extreme examples like Deborah Sampson, who disguised herself as a man 
uh, to fight uh, in the war. But there were all these other needs, uh, even before it became a shooting war, uh, when you, it was a, the main weapon against the British was a boycott of British merchandise. Mm-hmm. Well, you needed women to replace the clothing, which had been their number one import from Britain that they're now cutting off. They're not going to buy any more clothes from Britain until Britain repeals the stamp, I mean, the uh, tea tax and so forth. Uh, so they were crucial before the war. They're crucial during uh, the war. Uh, one of my graduate students named Riley Sutherland made this amazing discovery that even laundresses, who you kind of think of them as, the, you know, the kind of the bottom of the, of the totem pole, they were saving lives because once Washington finally changed his mind and inoculated his army against smallpox, only the males in his army, against smallpox, then the number one killer was typhus, and the number one way that typhus spread was through dirty shirts. And so women who are washing um, shirts, they're killing the lice uh, that spread that, that typhus. So they, um, it really elevated women in that way. And you see this with Abigail. On the one hand, yes, uh, there, she did try to apply the ideals of the revolution to women in that famous, remember the lady's letter, that she wrote George Washington in 1776. And she said, hey, if you're, if we're going to be a republic now, then we need educated men. And if we want to have educated men, we're going to need their moms to be educated because that's who educates the boys. Uh, and so I don't want to say that the ideological impact of the revolution on women was zero. It wasn't zero, but it was less significant than the mere fact, for instance, in Abigail's case, that her husband, John, was separated her from her for most of 10 years first down in Congress and then over in France as an American diplomat, that put her in charge of the family finances, which she ran much better than John ever had. And then the most revolutionary thing she did was not that, but having been so successful, sometimes by unscrupulous methods that we could talk about, having been so successful, she took some of that money and set it aside and started referring to it as, I love this phrase of hers, this money, which I call mine. Oh, she wow. knew under the law, which hadn't changed with the revolution, it was not her money, but she'd earned it. And 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 she was going to do a little experiment in her household of, of trying to lay claim to some of the money that she'd earned. And um, John had laughed and literally said, I cannot but laugh at your remember the lady's letter. And, and as Cokie Roberts used to say, she must have wanted to kill him for that. And so he's his total sexist pig in 1776 in response to the remember the lady's letter. But when she took this money that she had made and set it aside and wanted to control it herself, he at least passively went along with that. And she often used it for purposes that he wouldn't necessarily agree with. She liked to bribe their adult children to come near, live near them. So, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll buy you a house if you'll come next, come back to Massachusetts and live with me, that sort of thing. Um, at one point, she actually, uh, uh, there was a piece of property he wanted to, to, uh, to buy, uh, and he didn't have the money available. She said, I will lend you the money, but only if you'll come home to America. He was in France at the time. Uh, and so she was doing what, you know, your spouse uh, or my spouse can do too, which yes. is, uh, you know, owning property I mean, it gives you power. Um, and, um, you know, you're not taking the Volvo to, to, to Maine it'll never make it. Or, you know what I mean? You yeah. have oh, you, I do. property is power. And she was asserting that in absolute defiance of American law and five centuries of British uh, law, she just did it and culminated in 
writing her will. And when I when I was writing that biography, and I got you know, I did it chronologically, and when I researched it chronologically, and when I got to her will, which she wrote in 1816, I first just kind of copied out the main things and I'll put a paragraph on this. But there was something bothering me about Abigail Adams's will, uh, and it took me kind of a couple of days to figure out what was bothering me, and it was that she shouldn't have written a will because she was a married woman. Her husband she died in 1818. Her husband in 1826. And so she technically owns no property um, uh, that she can that she can devise in a will. You know, that's the main reason you write a will. Uh, but she just did it anyway. And this is where I really say good old John Adams um, for all of his monarchism and uh, racism sometimes, although he was anti-slave. The coolest thing he did was he complied with Abigail's will to the letter. Um uh, yeah, he could have thrown it in the fire, but he complied with yeah. it uh, and made it a legal document by doing so. And in a sense, you know, he was sort of a junior feminist uh, by doing that. <laughs> I love it. And, you know, there, there's so many cases where I really wish women, I mean, they have a lot of power for sure that, uh, you know, if you look at history, uh, there's examples like that for sure. But, for example, I, I kind of wish Eleanor Roosevelt had been president uh, and that Franklin Roosevelt had uh, done more of what she suggested. Uh, oh, absolutely. She would have done so much better. Uh, but all those cases that both you mentioned and I mentioned, those are cases of dire necessity. Yes. That is, women are starving for bread or John's gone for 10 years. And so... I'm, I'm a skeptic on how much impact the ideals of the revolution helped women. It was the desperation of the men that helped women. Right. Not ideals. That's a very interesting. I mean, that's it's pocketbook issues that really drive people in general. And you know, this, this show is called Keeping Democracy Alive. But the reality is democracy was hardly the universal agreed upon goal of the American Revolution. My guess is that it was an exceedingly rare wealthy white man in the 18th century who wholeheartedly embraced democracy. As you say, before and even after the Constitution was adopted in 1788, gentlemen worried that the revolution had also provided opportunities for the classes beneath them. Myth, of course, reinforces belief, but actual history challenges beliefs. And despite our generally rosy picture, you say the Constitution took away the state's most important peacetime powers, levying taxes to pay off war debts and regulating debtor-creditor relations, including the money supply, and bestowed them on a new and designedly undemocratic federal government. But you say democratization didn't really come until the Jacksonian era. Why is that? What, well, what about the Jacksonian era that, that uh, enabled uh, democracy well, to actually come? Yeah, I probably should put that differently because people are going to think I mean that Jackson prevented, provided democratization. But, for instance, there were several states that only uh, in the 1830s finally got rid of their property qualification for voting. Uh, um, uh, and actually, a bunch of southern states uh, uh, still have still, things yeah. like jail for debt uh, right up until Reconstruction. People forget how much poor white men got out of Reconstruction. Uh, abolition of jail for debt, uh, public, you know, free public schools. Uh, there were there were numerous Southern states that didn't have that until they finally had black leaders who insisted on those basic rights um, to not be put in jail for debt and to and to, to a basic education, um, and insisted that we have those. And so when they got rid of 
reconstruction and 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 um and a lot of the people pushing it you know when they when they destroyed reconstruction uh most of those many of those reforms that benefited poor white people survived and of course those poor white people forgot that they owed those to these african-americans former slaves who'd gotten elected to the legislatures yeah well it's it's uh democracy is something that not, not everybody wants uh, hamilton for example later on but uh you know it, it would be nice if we could say that after america got its independence from england life got better for the masses what did in fact trickle down to the masses uh, okay, tough call. Depends on the place, but the short answer is politically the 1780s, which was economically one of our worst decades because they had this huge war debt and everything, and the war had destroyed so much and uh, had so many people out of work all that time. Uh, but, so this the 1780s were economically one of our worst decades, but politically it was an amazingly promising decade. The extreme example would well for, remember most of the power was in the states, not the federal government, right. until the Constitution was ratified in 1788. Uh, until then, Congress was basically uh, like the UN General Assembly. You know, they they would get together and talk, but but uh, I'm exaggerating. But they didn't have a ton of power. All right. of the power uh, was in the state legislatures, and. Um, some states, uh, like uh, Massachusetts and especially Maryland and New York, adopted not very democratic constitutions, but some went to the other extreme of really fairly democratic constitutions. Pennsylvania um, had a lower house of the assembly that was elected every single year, which was true, by the way, uh, in all but uh, my good old state of South Carolina every two years and Connecticut, where they're actually elected every six months. So the other 11 states. The House, the Assembly is elected every year, which, you know, if we think about that now, that's a nuisance, but it did hold the representatives accountable because the voters didn't have four or whatever, six years uh, to forget how the representatives had voted. So that holds them accountable. And then uh, once a bill got through the lower house of the Pennsylvania Assembly, there's no Senate to overturn uh, what they did. And they had an executive council. Um, but but no governor and the executive council couldn't veto legislation and the courts also couldn't overturn legislation. You know, we've just had this appalling thing where this one federal judge appointed unqualified, according to the Bar Association, put on the federal bench who just got rid of ma mask mandates in mid flight. So here you are flying with your four year old who can't get the shot and your grandmother who who's uh, especially vulnerable. A lot of people can't get the shot because of pre-existing conditions or whatever. You're in the middle of a plane flight and everyone takes off their mask because of some joker in, uh, in Florida with life term with a life term on the, on the federal bench. Well, that wasn't true in, in the Pennsylvania uh, case where the judges couldn't overturn laws. And so it was really Pennsylvania that Alexander Hamilton was talking about when he characterized the big problem that the Constitutional Convention had gathered to solve, he said the reason we're here is, quote, excess of democracy. That is, states like Pennsylvania and others weren't, weren't quite as democratic as Pennsylvania, but they were in that direction. These states uh, like Pennsylvania have have gone too far, uh, too much democracy. I, I got to tell you about one other feature of Pennsylvania's Constitution. Sure. So you put in a major bill in, in 1783, it can't. Uh, it, it, it doesn't take effect immediately. Uh, you got to vote on it again 
after the next election in 1784. And so as people described it, it made the voters at large, and of course, we're still only talking about free white men. Mm-hmm. It made the voters a branch of the legislature. Wouldn't that be cool if we had that Whoa. now? A branch of the legislature. Wow. I, I do like democracy. And boy, there's a concerted effort now by the uh, Republican Party, which has moved so far to the right as I, I never could have imagined that. They hate democracy. They're, they're against education because people could learn things there and, and actually become uh, informed. And uh, as, as we know, tyrants and tyranny depends on an uneducated populace. And our founders, at least many of them, because I know there's a lot of differences among all of them, uh, felt that uh, in order to have a republic, uh, you have to have an educated populace. And that's really under attack right now, for sure. And among, Absolutely. among various dynamics affecting politics these days is the culture war. How might your book contribute to the culture war debate, do you think? Have you thought about that? Um, I'm going to answer that, but let me say one last thing about something you just said, which I completely agree with. Um, it was a it was a common idea in the revolution that, okay, now that we're going to become a republic, they weren't actually that much more Republican than they'd been before, um, but they were more Republican. But they were more Republican than under the colonial uh, uh, during the colonial era. Now they were republic. We need people to be more educated, and by people they mean men. But yeah. in order to get men educated, then you do need to educate more women. And so people like Abigail Adams made that case, and you did have growth in women's as well as men's education. But here's my point: uh, that. When we say educated, that can mean any number of things along mm. this spectrum from being uh, indoctrinated into what mm-hmm. the government wants you to think mm-hmm. versus being someone who questions authority, whether from the left or right or anywhere else. And what's tr- most tragic about the culture war to me is that so many people are determined to promote the notion that education should be indoctrination. Yeah. You must love our what you were saying at the outset about about uh, 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 not just propagating myths, but sort of enforcing myths. Um, and so I do think it's, for instance, for people like me who really like the 1619 Project, uh, I signed it in uh, in one of my classes this semester. But I also signed critics of it, and and um, and you know, there's a, there's a thin line between who does what position does deserve to be represented you know i'm not one of these people like those texans who go okay let's put in some anti-holocaust uh, literature but also some pro-holocaust uh literature remember that was that in texas or florida where that I weird thing happened <laughs> so there are some positions obviously that don't deserve to be represented but i'm ha- i i was very happy as someone who likes the 1619 project to give them the letter that my friend gordon wood and a bunch of other conservative uh white folks uh, wrote denouncing uh, the 1619 Project, and let the students decide for themselves. So I do mm. think it's important for people on the left to not counter right-wing indoctrination with left-wing indoctrination. And you, you, you're you not for that, uh, and I'm not for that, but we need to... And I would even go further and say we've got to let some really disgusting people speak on college campuses and not shout them down uh, and stuff. Yes. Because if we want them to believe in even a shred of, of free speech and critical thinking we need to go overboard to be like caesar's wife as they used to say uh we got to be perfect if we want them to do better 
Yes, we need to. And uh, yeah, shouting people down, that, that's, that's not okay, in my opinion, no matter how crazy it is. And uh, so is it possible that evidence-based history, which we're talking about here, may yeah. eventually win the culture war? I mean, you talk about how we can't, I mean, people are locked in battle. You know, they insult the other side uh, and, and nothing gets anywhere. Each side just uh, digs in harder. Could What's your sense that, uh, I don't want to be Pollyanna-ish, but that evidence-based history may eventually win the culture war? <laughs> I'll, I'll, tell, I'll give you one reason I'm discouraged and one reason I'm encouraged. Discouraged is, I thought, if anything would break the cult, it would be COVID. That is, you can be, uh, you, all, all of your blogs and and uh, Facebook friends and, and right wing radio or whatever can tell you, oh, there's no need to wear a mask. There's right. no need to get the vaccine. And you can believe that. But then your uncle is dead. He's dead. Yeah. Uh, and that's a fa- that's an undeniable fact. And uh, and that doesn't not seem to have happened. I think the people now I will say I have a very conservative uh, cousin who did at least get the shot. But but that didn't lead my cousin to then go. Oh, right. And they lied to me about this. Maybe they're lying to me about other things. Um, so people do have an ability uh, to sort of, it's, isn't this what the body does? You know, it attacks invaders and isolates them. And I think the the reality that we all saw, the tragic reality that we all saw through COVID did not have the effect that I was hoping it would. Mm. That people would say the same people who lied to me about COVID, maybe they're lying to me about gay people or maybe they're lying to me. Uh, about other things. Uh, I'm sorry that hasn't happened. My encouraging thing is that I'm sort of a student of the Salem witch trials, and people often refer to it as a fever. There have been actually a few biologists who've gotten into it who think there may have been a literal uh, fever similar to encephalitis that was causing people to hallucinate and see witches. But, but, um, you know, that was a fever. We've been through red fevers and Mm. all these other uh, fevers. Fevers do break, and that may not be very encouraging to use this a medical analogy because, of course, sometimes fevers don't break. Sometimes fevers kill you. Yeah, uh, and that is certainly on the list of possibilities, in my opinion, that, that this is going to be bad enough that it's going to kill us. But, um, you know, one of the things, if you ask why, I always ask why did the Salem witch trials, not far from you, happen? Right. What we don't ask enough is why did they finally end? But one thing that seems clear is that all these women are getting accused of Witchcraft. They started with Tichuba, who was either Native or uh, African American, and uh, other uh, sort of angry, poor women, blah blah. blah. And it, but it went up the economic scale, and eventually, someone accused the governor's wife of being a witch. Uh. And that's when people, <laughs> the elite authorities, started to say, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! Maybe this thing has gotten out of hand." So, uh, so we need some equivalent uh, of that when someone starts making the case to the other Trump people that Trump is a witch, uh, which I think you could make that case. Yeah. Uh, when, when we get to that point, then, uh, then maybe the fever breaks. Oh, I don't know. These people, you know, no matter how much evidence there is, they're going to say, oh, it's just political. You know, that he right. broke all right. kinds of laws. I, I hope the fever will break every, eventually. So what can, uh, I wonder about young people these days. I get the sense that maybe they are 
interested in history. Maybe they can see beyond, uh, this is overgeneralizing, the, the simplicity and are willing to look at the uncomfortable complexities and realities. What, what's, your, what's your hope for young people these days? And uh, as a uh, professor who runs into a lot of people in their 20s, I imagine, uh, what's your sense? How optimistic may you be that they want to actually explore history? Oh, I'm uh, very much so. Um, and I just uh, saw a paper uh, up in Virginia by a um, professor at Old Dominion University named Marvin Childs. And it wasn't exactly speaking to your issue, but it was pretty close. And then he was talking about uh, uh, redevelopment of Richmond. You know, Richmond is one of the cities where the downtown just died at some point. Mm. And in the 80s, they tried to solve the problem with big buildings, you know, a new uh, auditorium and a new um, government paid for mall uh, that would hopefully people would come downtown and shop and at the mall and blacks and whites would become friends uh, in ways that they hadn't in their isolated, segregated neighborhoods and all that stuff. Uh, and it was a total disaster. I remember eating in the in the in the little eating place in that mall and we had it to ourselves. It was just yeah. um, no, no one came. But then they came up with a new approach uh, in Richmond. I'd like to think my brother-in-law, who was mayor at the time, had a little to do with this of let's just bring more young people to Richmond. So they started hosting these big bike races, but also building mountain bike trails out on these islands in the James River. And a big part of the appeal, as described by Professor Childs, was they started really doing black history right. You know, Richmond was, we think of New Orleans as the great slave market, but those slaves were coming from somewhere to be sold in New Orleans. And the biggest place they were coming from was Richmond, Virginia, coming not down the Mississippi River, but down the James River and then down the coast and over around Florida into to New Orleans. And so they started really confronting that past. Uh, and they have a, a slave trail, a slave trade trail where people learn about that. Oh, and they've got a bike. I'm, I'm on the bike thing right at the moment. they got a bike line that, that uh, Tim Caden pushed through that runs all the way from Richmond to Jamestown, which of course is a historic. Every inch of that is historic, hmm. whether you're talking civil war, slavery, or the Revolutionary War or whatever. And so my point is, I was just listening to something else this morning about the great replacement theory. No. This is a different version of the replacement theory is it replaced people your and my age with young people who are much more open-minded. So if you look at things like um, uh, my state, I'm very sorry to say, is uh, trying to pass legislation to prohibit um, something equivalent to the Don't Say Gay bill uh, in Florida. Mm. Um, but But even in Florida, young people don't support that they are so over um anti-gay discrimination and they're leading the way i think in getting us all to um accept trans people and not think they're weird which they were in my we thought they were when i was when i was young but so so um so yes i do think time if we can just hang on uh and and make sure that the next election isn't overturned the last the way the last one almost was if we can hang on these young people are are gonna are going to do a lot better. I'm I'm very enthused about young people in general. I have to say, and uh, I, this has been a fascinating discussion. Woody Holton uh, is a uh, professor, Peter and Bonnie McCosland, professor of history at the University of South Carolina, and the new book is. Liberty is Sweet, The Hidden History of the American Revolution, and it's put out by Simon & Schuster. Thank you so much uh, for uh, being here with us today. Very, very interesting and kind of fun. Oh, it's certainly been fun for me. So this is a great pleasure for me, and I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you.